John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi everyone. There isn't really anything John and I love more than taking a deep dive into a great film. But some of our favorite conversations are the ones we record each week for our supporters on Patreon. We call them Cinephile Shorts, and the topics are suggested by our patrons, inspired by world events, or sometimes it's just stuff John and I want to get off our chests. We thought it would be fun to share some of our favorite conversations from the last year of Shorts. So over the next two hours, you will hear us discuss toxic fandom, we'll try to define exactly what is a Western, we'll explore how intelligence is portrayed in film, and the career of the great Nicolas Cage. And with crowds returning to movie theaters, John and I thought it would be a good time to review proper movie theater etiquette. And finally, one of our favorite patrons commented on how often we say the words, but I digress, on the regular show. And he was curious about our favorite off-topic conversations and digressions in general. Now, we feel the answer we gave was very illuminating, and we hope you will too. So, that's just a small taste of the conversations John and I have every week exclusively on Patreon. And yes, if some of you are wondering why we are releasing a shorts compilation rather than part four of our exploration of Malcolm X... You got us. Blame the scheduling gods for the delay, and we hope you enjoy these great conversations from patreon.com slash the cinephiles while you wait. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Cinephile Shorts. I am Steve Morris, here with my trusty companion, John Roca. Hello. And we are doing a question from Ryan Lee. Ryan has some of the best questions, I think, and here's what he writes. Yeah. Toxic fandom. Apologies if you've covered this already, but I just saw a Facebook post about the hate Wyatt Russell is receiving mm. over his Captain America portrayal, including death threats 
accompanied by the comment, and once again, comic fans are the worst. Mm. And it got me thinking about the topic of toxic fandom. What impact do you think toxic fandom has on the industry as a whole? And do you think that certain fandoms are inherently more toxic than others? Personally, I think toxic fandom absolutely exists and is horrible, but I get a little tired of people blaming specific fandoms, whether it's comic book fandom, Star Wars fandom, uh, or what have you, I think it's damaging to the true fans and empowers the nurture side of the nature nurture debate. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I think it places the blame on IP instead of on the person. I think all fandoms have the potential to make people go a little crazy. And we as a society need to hold people accountable for their horrible behavior and not let them off the hook by blaming the label of blank fans. What do you guys think? First of all, I just want to say, um, the nature nurture thing is interesting and uh i do agree on not blaming the ip you know mm -hmm. it's not star wars fault that star wars fans are jerks what do you think john i think it's 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 an interesting um topic and it's more nuanced than people might want to think because clearly there's people in my sphere who just default to generalizations and labels and cuz it's just easier on a 280 character tweet to just fall back on that but it's more, I think it's more nuanced than people want to readily admit, you know? And I and I think there is obviously toxic fandom throughout any fandom. By the way, there was toxic Christianity too, ladies and gentlemen. That's essentially a version of a fandom as well. There is toxicity in anything where a group of people get together to devote their praise and their time and their efforts uh, to supporting it or promoting it. Or um, being a patron of it. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, not the cinephiles, though. So, there's no toxicity in cinephiles, that's for sure, for you patrons here. Who Honestly, listen. very little. I <laughs> mean, I, I, we little. haven't experienced very much. Yeah. Um, but this is the truth of, of, of what you see in all these. And there's no way you can, I just don't think there's any way to quantifiably gauge or to quantify and gauge which fandom has the worst toxicity, which doesn't. There's no way you can do that. There's no way you can do that. There are toxic Star Wars fans. There are toxic DC fans, toxic Marvel fans, all across the board. This is just humanity, and it's a sad truth, just like there are toxic sports fans, you know? And so it just, there's no escaping it. And I think also, and I do think that uh, defaulting back to generalizations, oh, Star Wars fans, oh, DC fans, oh, Snyder fans, Zack Snyder fans or whatever, I think is such a, um, it shows a weakness in in intelligence in assessing a situation like this. There's so much more involved that you need to explore and put together when it comes to something like this. And so, yes, I think there's toxicity. I don't see how you get toxicity out of fandom other than to just keep speaking about a better way to approach presenting your points of views. And most of the time, if you go at people who are toxic towards you, I've found it on my low-level celebrity status that I have, Z-level celebrity status that I have, uh, most people back down. And most people go, oh, you're right, I didn't look at it that way, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. Because they just are screaming to be heard. They need to be heard because they are powerless in their own lives and they think shooting down other people or stepping on other people is a way to reclaim some kind of power in their lives. Um, and it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate, you know. Um, first of all, I was just thinking like, wow, if you're a Z-level celebrity, what does that make me? It's like, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I mean, really, I'm not any level of a celebrity, I think. But um, I, I agree with 
basically everything you said. And I think we can end the short pretty much right here. But um, but I suppose <laughs> I should say okay. say something, which is is that yes, they're always assholes. Mm-hmm. I think the world of social media has amplified allowed those assholes to be amplified in a way, and that it's also contagious. You know, right. so like when you're when you're at a a baseball game or a sporting event and someone starts yelling at the refs or starts yelling at a guy at the other team or yelling at the coach or whatever. First of all, that's only one person. And if only they are yelling that coach or that ref or that they'll never hear it. It's too yeah. far away, right. but occasionally it will become the group and the whole, uh, you know, crowd will start yelling horrible yes. things at They're someone yeah. because it gets, it's contagious. And so within that group dynamic, people will say things. I li- I remember listening to my dad say things at Cal football games mm. that would come out. Of his mouth. I was like, what? And my dad was the most mild mannered person, <laughs> but he, he kind of had fun getting into the game you know what yeah. i mean and it was like wow what was that and and i think that's part of what happens on the internet is there is a uh S- steve jones and i came up with the theory which is the cult of negativity mm. which is that and basically this is this is where the theory came from is that he was going to work and it was the day after whatever the big weekend movie was and so the first and because he works in a geeky environment the first yeah. thing to talk about was that movie and he knew that they would bash it, you know, and yeah. that the way and what the cult of negativity, what we realize is the fastest way to connect with other people is to say things negative. Right. Don't right. you? Because we connect on things we hate. It's really fat, instant. Mm-hmm. I can't believe they did this. Oh, my God, you're right. That's terrible. Oh, that's terrible. Whether it's politics right. or, you know, anything. Um, Movies, and, anything. Yeah. And the opposite side of the cult of negativity is that's that we came up with is, is that if you look at my if i look at all my long-term relationships people i really care about Mm -hmm. it's people that i connected with on things that i loved Mm -hmm. not things that i hated right you know like you you, what's your and i relationship you know it's like we yeah deep deep love of films and so when you come out of that place the do it saying the toxic shit even though there's movies i've hated movies you've hated and we've Mm -hmm. certainly talked smack about them um but that's not the core of who we are yeah the other thing I would say is as soon as it becomes personal, yeah. you're being an asshole. You know, it's the trolling in general on the internet is that I, I didn't, I'm not as big a Zack Snyder fan as you are. Mm. And I like the justice league much better than mm. the Joss Whedon one, obviously, mm. but I would never say anything mean about Zack Snyder. Right. Right. That, right. That's where the, it's like, you know, the, the guy playing captain America on Falcon and winter soldier, he's an actor. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why are you giving him a death threat? Mm-hmm. What the fuck is wrong with you? Right. You know, like, that's where I just go that level of attacking. People don't understand that these are humans on the well, other side. Or they do. And that's the really um, uncomfortable part of this whole situation is they do. And they, they know their words, as I said, because they have so little power in their own lives to control their own lives. Their words can damage someone. Their word, They can be... Um, complicit and uh, uh, directly so in forcing people off social media. Wyatt Russell took himself off social media because wow. of the death threats he was getting and what have you. Daisy Ridley, uh, Kelly Marie Tran. There's so there's a, like a litany of celebrities who have taken themselves off social media because of the negative uh, uh, stuff that they've received and death threats or whatever. You know, I, even when I was a Collider, a couple of people I work with received death threats because of their opinions 
about a movie. I would laugh off a death threat because I don't really give a shit. And I don't think these nerds have any real ability to kill you, in my opinion. But when you're getting them um, at the level that Wyatt Russell is at, that level of celebrity, it must be so disheartening to open your social media and just see a constant stream of people attacking you making fun of you, threatening your life and whatever. So why would you want to open that? That's such a mental health black hole that you don't want to go into. And that's the uh, that's the part of this that I think is, is um, sad uh, because this is the effect that they're having. But when you strip it all down, you have to go look at this thing. Where does it come from, right? What is happening in society that is causing these people to react in this way, to feel this way, to... To say things like this, what gives them the power? Is it, is it the anonymity of social media? Uh, fine, but what is it beyond that? What, what are the societal triggers, impulses, constructs that are allowing this to happen or giving these people the proclivity to react this way to an actor or a movie or a franchise uh, or what have you? Or an actress, obviously. Um, these are the things that I, I think is beyond the toxicity thing. Um, first of all, the how terrible it is towards a dude is even worse when it's women. Because yes, they just do the, some of the things that are said. You know, things about rape and things about you oh, know horrific and, and and you know creating photoshopping pictures and horrible. You know, like all this stuff is just vile. Yeah, I think I I think there's several things about it. One is is I think it's when people take ownership of a thing. Or the, the, I'll put it a different way. When yeah. people associate a thing with themselves, yeah. I am a Star Wars fan. I am a this. I am a that. And their identity is connected to it. Yeah. Then when that identity, something happens that they don't like with it, they are personally upset. Right. They take it personal. And you shouldn't. It's just a movie, dude. You know, yeah. like, okay, you didn't like that movie. Fine. You didn't like that casting choice. Whatever. Right. That's just what it is. And I, but I also think it's just, you know, it's trolls and toxicity as a whole. I think right. I don't think toxic fandom is different from people saying horrible things in political forums or other forums. Oh, yeah, I think no. it's it's this and I, I do think that the social media has enabled a thing for humans that didn't exist before, that was always there, but didn't right. have an outlet. Yes. You know, yes. um, because you would never those people would not walk up to uh walker or i'm sorry those people would not walk up to wyatt russell and threaten his life in person yeah you know that would right. they wouldn't do it and i think there's like and, and man i you've seen it more than me personally mm -hmm. but it's there are people who love to troll yes that's their i remember one um do you remember when someone said some horrible thing to sarah silverman on twitter mm -hmm. right right and she said hey you are you having a rough time Right. And like responded to him. The guy's like, yeah, I actually lost my job and I've been had some back problems. She's like, oh, that's terrible. Here's some resources for you. Like she just yep. responded with compassion and just broke the troll. You yep. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because it's like some weird shit's going on that you think that attacking a celebrity, that, that that's making you feel good. Yeah. You know? Again, it's about reclaiming control. Just like you said, yeah. he had no control because he lost his job. He lost, uh, you know, he's got back issues. Those are things that are out of his control. You know, and those those are the things that people unfortunately turn to use uh, to kind of reestablish whatever illusion of control they need to have in their lives, and that's the the sad truth of it all. You know, but yeah, like she said, like.
like I said earlier, confronting the people, nine times out of 10, they back down. Nine times out of 10, they kind of say that it was something else that was spurring them on. And and they're human beings and they reveal it. Now, is there a sociopathy, a sociopathy to some of these uh, uh, people? Yes. Uh, and that's the truth in any forum. Right, there are sociopathic uh, sports fans, pol- political fans, and and uh, uh, fans of this kind of stuff. And sadly, you're never going to get that out of a uh, fandom because there's a human beings. That's a human thing. Uh, and I think there was toxicity since the first caveman drew a fucking story on the wall. Uh, I think there's been toxicity. First of all, uh, first of all, that's not how a bison looks. You did <laughs> yeah, a t- I can't believe that like ain't my the, bison. That yeah. is my bison. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's the truth of it it never has ended i mean if you, people want to go back and look at and watch that uh, great documentary eight part documentary that uh, ken burns did on the roosevelts uh people who now we all revere fdr so much back then people were really afraid he was wanting to become a dictator they put hitler mustaches on roosevelt while we were still in the middle of world war ii ladies and gentlemen so the toxicity exists no matter i'm sure there was i'm sure toxicity around lincoln was probably insane oh yeah if we had message boards back then, imagine what the toxicity was. Uh, you know, we only had newspapers, so those people had a, a place to put their toxicity. But imagine if we had message boards. My God, what Lincoln well, would have endured. We yeah. we know that Stanton, who I think I think it was him, who was Secretary of Defense, called him the original gorilla. You know, <laughs> like I mean, of course, people said horrible things about Lincoln. I remember yeah. a moment, by the way, in two thousand eight, when Obama's running for president. And someone came to him in an interview and said, here are all the horrible things people are, you know, what, how do you feel about the fact that people just said this or that or whatever? Yeah. And he was so cool. He said, oh man, I've been called worse on the basketball court. And he was so <laughs> above it, you know, because yeah. Obama, you know, like he was yeah. very difficult to fluster. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, it, it's such a weird instinct out of, particularly for a movie. And it's mm-hmm. like, I will tell you have heard me rip a movie to pieces. Sure. Sure. But I'm not ripping the people to pieces. Right. right. You know, and that's where the, the divide sometimes gets lost in the toxicity culture. You're right. Yeah. It, it's a thing. Unfortunate. But yeah. So uh, first of all, thank you, Ryan, for your yes. great suggestion. And thank you, all of you, for not being toxic fans. We appreciate your support. And yes, if you feel like we've done something wrong, we love we want to hear your criticism. Yeah. We want to hear your opinions. But please don't threaten to kill me or John. It's (laughs) really not appreciated. No. Um, And I think that's it for this. Uh, For John Roca and myself, thank you all patrons. And we'll see you on the next Patreon Cinephile Short. Hello and welcome to another edition of Cinephile Short. My name is Steve Morris. I am here with my trusty companion, John Roca. Howdy. Uh, and he says, howdy, because we got a Western question from Peter Bylone, who says, guys, I was listening to your to part two of your The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, which, by the way, he abbreviated as T-A-O-J-J-B-T-C-R-F. I don't yeah. know if that's the longest yeah. <laughs> title letters. But it's an it's eye pretty- chart. I thought I was blind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he <laughs> says, uh, and I just heard you talk about this movie elevating the Western movie genre. However, I wonder what's the difference is between a Western movie and a period piece set in the West. Hmm. Isn't this maybe more of the latter? What is the line between those two genres or really any similar genre and movie considered a period piece? Hmm. Well, I think a period piece tells a story that is universal it's just set at that time. And so the 
particulars around that time affect the general uh, universal story, right? Um, that to me is a period piece. Like Anna Karenina, that's a period piece, but everything that happens in Anna Karenina could happen now. It's just mm. in a different format. But when you look at the Western genre, when you look at the assassination of uh, Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, that's a that's in essence a version of a Western and biopic at the same time. So you're telling the true story or what you think is the true story of this person who actually lived at that time and what they experienced. So therefore, it's a Western, in my opinion, because of that. Plus, you have the tropes of revenge, which are all about Westerns, because that's Jesse James trying to figure out who's been selling him out, who's been telling the truth. Then you have the idea of the uh, under underdog coming after the big dog, and that's, the, that's basically the man who shot Liberty Balance. So you've got these kind of cliches that are working through the assassination uh, of Jesse James here throughout that movie, and you add to it an incredible score. You add to it Roger Deakins' cinematography. You add to it a, 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 a I don't know, incredible performances from Brad Pitt and Casey Affleck. Really a career-turning performance by Casey Affleck in this movie. And so that's the elevation. It isn't just simply revenge, get your revenge, or fight off the big guy. You know, It is more a conversation about what the decisions are that you make in life. And just because you're famous doesn't mean you should have been famous. And then what that fame brings to you at that time in that period, you know, what it, what it causes when he ends up getting shot by some nobody who took the train up and just wanted to get famous by shooting him the way he almost got the way he kind of, he got famous by shooting Jesse James, even though that wasn't necessarily his, uh, his intention. I think those are all great points, and I think it does show why this is far more than a genre film. Mm-hmm. Not 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 to denigrate genre films. You and I mm, both love genre not. films, but like yeah. this is this is. I think when we said this was elevated, I think that's absolutely absolutely true. I, I so I think I told you that it. You know, at one point mm. I had to teach genre classes in film school. Mm. Did I tell you this? Um, like basically at the beginning of the semester, particularly when I first started, they would hand you a syllabus and yeah. I'll go, Oh, I have to teach this, this semester. And some of the time it was stuff that I totally knew. And some of the times it was stuff like, how the fuck am I going to teach this? I don't know. I don't, <laughs> this is in my area of expertise. Like I didn't teach a class on commercials. It's like, well, I'm not a commercial director. Right, right. What do I, and I, it wasn't just a class. I, I mean, I had to teach like, it was like half the semester on commercials. Wow. You know? And so there was a lot to figure out. And one of the ones was that it was like two or three days and, and basically in the syllabus, it said, explain all film genres and how they work. <laughs> and I went, well, I don't, how do they work? And I spent a lot of time thinking of it and thinking about it. And so I do have some strong opinions about this is that in general, what we think of when we think of most of these genres is a setting. Mm. So we think of, well, if it takes place in the old West, it's a Western. If it takes place in space, it's science fiction. If it takes place, you know, with dragons and things like that, then it's fantasy. Um, and I think those aren't, that's totally true, but not mm-hmm. that useful um, mm-hmm. because it doesn't tell you what kind of movie it is. And, and, and particularly because frequently we have films that um, are multiple genres together. Yeah. You know, is that like Harry Potter, those are, fa- it's a fantasy because you have magicians and dragons and all the fantasy stuff. Structurally, Harry Potter is a mystery. Mm-hmm. That's oh, how right. Harry Potter yes. works. He's trying to figure out why. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. Ron. Harry and Hermione are the three detectives trying to figure out what's going on. Right. It totally has mystery. So, so mystery actually tells you more about the structure of Harry Potter, you know, than, than fantasy does Mm. fantasy, I think tells you more about the structure of star Wars than science fiction does. 
like so my definitions of a of a western is in general most westerns are dealing on one way or another with the idea of you're on your own mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is that in our world if i suddenly get sick i could pick up the phone and dial 911 and someone's going to be here or right. if I, a criminal comes within 5 10 minutes there's mm -hmm. someone here and in the west mm -hmm. that's not true so if you look at high noon he's on his own Yes. Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, they're on their own. The mm. searchers, you know, yeah. we have to solve this problem on our own. And so you could be, uh, and so like, uh, what is it? Is it uh, the, the Sean Connery High Noon in Space? Yeah, yeah. Um, Out Outland. Outland. Yeah. I think, yeah. So that's a Western set mm -hmm. in space. Yes. Yeah. Space is the setting. Right. But it's not really a science fiction show. It's really a Western. Yeah. And so like I to, and, and what I find useful about this is like, oh, we can do that. You're on your own thing and not have it set in the old West, but right. use the structure of of what that is, mm -hmm. you know, the, and, and then there and then what happens when you do that is you start to kind of figure out like, well, how does this movie work within this set of genres? You know right. what I mean? Right. Um, and so in that sense is I don't is um, if you were to accept my definition, which obviously you don't have to, it's just what I made up. But um, is the assassination of Jesse James, is that a you're on your own kind of story? I'm not sure that it is. Yeah, I don't think uh, that it is. I think there's, because obviously Sam Rockwell is around him the whole time as his brother. Uh, so he is always around that. And Jesse himself is not even alone because he keeps um, Casey Affleck around him all the whole, most of the movie. And then and the one time he doesn't, he's with uh, I can't remember, Garrett Dillahunt and he ends up killing Garrett Dillahunt and then later ends up hooking back up again with Casey Affleck. So this, I, I don't think it necessarily is 100% no. alone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it, it that's why it falls into that, that more mm -hmm. of a drama. Like yeah. this is a, a character study. Yeah. Yes, it's in the Old West. That is its setting. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a different thing. Yeah. Um, what, which would you rather act in? Like, do you want to be in more of the drama that's set in the old West? Or do you want to get your six shooters on and go do a fun Western? Well, I think when I was in my thirties and twenties and maybe even half of my forties, absolutely gets to get the six shooter on. Let's take care of business. Now that I'm older, I would prefer more of like the no country for old men approach to a Western, like the more conversational philosophical um approach with the occasional you know insane villain like uh mr friendo over there uh, you know that mm. is more the inevitability of death like that is more of a approach you know i even kind of resist calling that movie a western a lot of people like to put that in the western category i don't see that movie as they like to put there will be blood in a western and i just don't see either of those movies as westerns in my opinion um i i can hear arguments for why they might be but i just i just don't i think they're more character explorations uh that are philosophical in approach Whereas I think since Jesse James is a real person, it kind of anchors that in being a Western. It does not make it, it sorry, it doesn't make it move into another genre for me. It is very much a Western. Yeah. And whatever else that decorates it around it can be whatever it wants to be, but its anchor is in a Western. And so that's why I think it is. Whereas No Country for Old Men can can happen anywhere. The inevitability of of death and the and the questioning whether you your um, efforts uh, as a lawman really made any difference at all. You know, you're, you can even transcend that out to anything you do. Did I, was I a good human? Was I a good man? Was I a good yeah. woman? Was I a good dad? Was I a good grandfather? Was I a good son? 
there's all you can you know can explore in there uh, within that so i don't see it as a western um and there will be blood as a biography is a is a in essence a, a fictional biopic it's, you know yeah, it's it's like it's a char- a character study yeah yeah, yeah so yeah. i don't think there will be blood as a western at all mm-hmm. like I, I don't think it falls into that it, i mean first of all yes it takes place in the west in yeah, an right, older exactly. period right. but it is not hats and gunslingers and you know like Mm -hmm. i mean yeah there's some horses in it but i wouldn't call that a western i actually for me no country for old men for my definition of that sort of you're you're out in a world where society can't help you right you know and uh, you know anton chagur's character is outside of the realm and that um what's his name um uh Uh, josh brolin yeah josh brolin Mm -hmm. Josh Brolin is definitely, I'm trying to solve my problem on the, on my own. The law is yeah. not going to help me. So for that, in that sense, that does feel very much like a Western. Yeah. Whereas if you want to say if there were blood, as, as Peter points out here, that's a period piece set in the West. Yeah. That fits more in that. Yeah. Um, I, I think I have the beginnings of the Western for you, John. Okay. Do you want to hear my idea? Please. I love it. It is what happens if the Magnificent Seven is bullshit is that there's the Mexican village Yes. And the white guys come to solve their problems. Yes. And the white guys are assholes, or some of them are. Yeah. And they don't solve their problems. And the Latino guy is the guy that ends up having to be the gunslinger to protect the village. You mean the young kid? Well, this is what I'm thinking. No, no, no. I, I don't think it's the young kid. Okay. Because, because again, we're just sort of like the Magnificent Seven. Right, right, right. Like, right. what I wonder almost is maybe mm. it's one of the kids that Charles Bronson was looking out for has grown oh, up. Yeah. And he is beco- going to become the hero and, 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 and to like actually that. make it about the, the Latino experience in the old West Yeah, yeah. and how, and, and rather, and putting that character, like we start off with like, you know, the white savior mm-hmm. and then, and then the white savior fails or right. is an asshole or is corrupt. Right. And then it's like, no, no, this this they're going to have to solve the problem themselves. That's good. And idea. maybe maybe it's even the that your character is who's going to he's going to rally the town. Right. And he's going to set up the defenses. Yeah. Oh, and you know what it is, too? OK, now this is getting better in my brain okay. is that your character went off to uh, join the cavalry. Like right. U.S. cavalry, right? So this is a person who served in the military, and maybe even served in the military in in some not so great things in the Indian Wars. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. was part of things that he regrets, and now comes from a somewhat dark place back to his hometown, right? right. Which is under threat from the you know from Eli Wallach and the bandits, mm. and is the person with his military experience that is going to rally the town to defend itself. I like that idea. Walking tall. Yeah. 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 But the Mexican point of view or a Latino point of view. I like it. All right. There you go. So we'll just get the money. I, <laughs> I, I don't know how much we're up to on Patreon. I don't know if we quite have enough to make this film. You I guys, like the idea. Come yeah. on. <laughs> it's so fun. I really wish I wish there was some job where it would be like, Steve, just come up with ideas all day. That seems like fun. Just pay me, you know. Isn't it called development? I feel like that's called development, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, development is is kind of do that, but mostly get repeatedly like fucked in the ass over no. and over and over again while you dream about the thing you want to make. <laughs> there you go. Well said. Um, I have a story. Here's a really brief, sad story. Please. I don't know if I'll put this in. So we were talking in another short recently about the dot-com mm. boom. Yes. There was another company I was involved with, with the dot, very kind of peripherally involved with, with in the dot-com boom. And they were mm-hmm. doing 
uh, Flash Animation. And this is oh, like yeah. 2000, 2001. And I know they had raised, first they raised like $15 million. Mm-hmm. And they had hired a bunch of people that you know who are artists to, to draw, do designs. And at right. one point they said, hey, we need more ideas. We got to have more. We don't have enough ideas. And uh, our friend Jeff, who, who you know, I think mm-hmm. you might have met uh, my friend Dave Draffin. Dave, yeah, I probably met him in passing, I think, yeah. once or twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dave is an idea machine. Mm. And Dave is the fastest writer I've ever... He can write a screenplay in a weekend. Wow. You know, he's one of those Holy kinds of people. Shit. And okay. so so Jeff goes, oh, my friend Dave has a lot of ideas. And so Dave goes down to have a meeting, literally goes, here are 400 ideas or something wow. like that. And they go, oh, my God, these are amazing. They offer him a few hundred dollars <laughs> they offer him stock in this company mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then and and what i'd heard was and i don't remember the exact numbers but it was like this it was like brothers who were running the company and the ceo okay. was making like three million a year and the other guy was making two million a year so it was a ton of money right and our friends were getting a couple hundred bucks and stock <laughs> <laughs> which you know if it's facebook that's a great thing it's not yeah. it's not worth anything so they go down to make a deal with one of the studios let's say it's universal and they raise an additional 10 million dollars wow these numbers aren't exactly what they were i don't remember but it was millions of dollars right and the thing they used to raise them was dave's story ideas they pitched all of dave's story ideas and they all got raises because they were the top the ceos of the company so they got millions of more dollars they pocketed the company went bankrupt all of our friends were left with worthless stock and the few hundred dollars they got paid and these guys made millions of dollars yeah bullshit bullshit that's the thing because you know people who can manipulate ideas for their own benefit uh, seem to profit more than the people who come up with that with because they go in their minds. Well, we're businessmen; that's our job. And it's like, oh man, no. yeah, I, they raise the money, right? You know, it's right. so it makes me so fucking angry, oh, and totally. it's it's so easy to be warped into thinking, well, that's this is what I'm worth. Yeah, well, and if you go like, well, whatever I can get, that must be what I'm worth. Right, right. You know, you're being told that's what you're worth. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. So uh, we went a little bit off (laughs) where we started, Peter, but uh, we really do like the question. Of course, we appreciate all of your support as we appreciate all of our patrons and we love all your questions. So please submit more ideas for Cinephile Shorts on movies or any other topic you like. Um, We might drift off of movies onto other topics anyway. (laughs) Um, And uh, for my partner, John Roca, I am Steve Morris and we'll see you on another Cinephile Short. Hello and welcome to another edition of the very intelligent cinephile short. I am here with my genius level partner, John Roca. Thank you. And I am a Mensa qualifying director, Steve Morris. And the reason that we're touting our incredible intelligence is that this suggestion, which comes from Matthew Gramlich, is called depicting intelligence. Yes. And Matthew says he's been listening to the shorts and I want to build off something you guys had laid down. Uncle Steve said i'll be your uncle uh at some point it's really difficult to portray intelligence i can think of many examples this is uh matthew talking i can think of many examples where we are being told a character is smart but we don't truly see the cognitive process happening for example Mm -hmm. tony stark solving time travel by doing some very focused staring 
Watching people thinking isn't necessarily dramatic. That's true. But it absolutely can be. Sometimes. I would argue a, a character's thoughts, the revelation of an internal experience, are the fundamental basis of drama. So the question, how would you approach communicating to an audience that a character is notably intelligent? Curious about this from both a storytelling and performance perspective. Also interested because I'm a dumbass. Matthew. Oh, Matthew. Matthew. You're talking about my nephew here, not a dumbass. Yeah, not and a dumbass. And would prefer to obscure that fact. Just kidding. I don't hide it. All right, Matthew. <laughs> but what do you think about this, John? Is it possible to portray intelligence just by thinking in your performance? Yeah, I think. I mean, I've, I think we've seen that with a lot of the Sherlock adaptations. Certainly Robert Downey Jr. and the way he's doing the slow motion, walking himself through that. He's essentially thinking because those events have not happened. So when he has those sequences in both of those movies, that's him showing you he's thinking. Watching Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind, John Nash kind of figure out an equation on the board going through that uh, whole thing is very funny. Watch, uh, oh, sorry, not very interesting. Watching Homeland and seeing Carrie, uh, seeing uh, Claire Danes' character try to figure everything out on that massive board, it can show intelligence, you know? And so it just depends on the situation that you're presented in a movie. I think it's absolutely possible, or, or TV show, it's absolutely possible to show intelligence without it being audacious or arrogant. I think you can do that. So what's interesting to me is in basically every one of your examples, it's not just someone thinking. It is someone doing things. It is yes. someone... This to is show the thing, thinking. is that in general, yes, mm -hmm. a, a fine actor can show their emotional state just by you looking at them. Yeah. I don't think intelligence really goes into that other than like, well, I put the glasses on intelligent, take the glasses off, not intelligent, glasses <laughs> on intelligent. I, okay. I think you need to do active things. And most oh. of drama is active choices. And right. so the, so that like the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes one, that is a perfect way of depicting intelligence is yeah. that you're seeing him, you're seeing how brilliant his mind is by how he slows down the moment, mm -hmm. thinks through every thought, and then you go, wow, his mind in the moment of a punch being thrown is actually having 5,000 thoughts. That's totally amazing. You know, that is showing you intelligence. It goes into this thing we talked about lots of times, the show don't tell, is yeah. that – is that you can't just if you just say that person is really intelligent or and it's funny because I've been watching um, Star Trek. I've been watching mm. Discovery. And man, one of the things I fucking hate is Star Trek techno babble <laughs> where it's just there's nothing going on. And someone's saying, well, you could reroute the dilithium crystal through the sensor array and do this. And it's just and they say a bunch of stuff. And then somebody else says a bunch of other stuff as, a, as if that's smart. Yeah. It's like, no, you didn't actually say anything smart. If, you know, if Kirk outsmarts Khan by using three-dimensional thinking, that is showing intelligence. Right. You right. know what I mean? Because he yeah. did something that I can recognize as smart, you know? Um, I mean, even, even like in Beautiful Mind, the explanation yeah. of that uh, Nobel Prize winning, winning economic theory, which is different girls and who is going after what girl in a bar. Yeah. I understand this Nobel Prize winning economic theory based on how brilliantly it's explained. And therefore, I see intelligence, you know. Right, right, right. But you're saying someone just sitting and staring is I'm difficult. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if yeah, I gave you, if you're, you're my actor and I say, John, I want you to sit here and be really smart. Yeah. Would that, how would, would that be a good direction for you? I would mean, I've be... gotten worse direction. So <laughs> <laughs> I can make it work. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. And I think it's because it's a visual medium. 
right? Yeah. So you so sitting there and staring at someone as because any slight to have them just staring at them for 30 to 45 seconds and there's no voiceover, there's no sounds, there's no anything to guide you into thinking what they might be thinking, then yeah, that is a difficult situation. You're not going to show intelligence uh, as well as you could, as as I just mentioned here with the Beautiful Mind or, or um, Sherlock Holmes situations. Well, it's, here's another Ron Howard movie. Apollo yeah. 13. Oh, yeah. From top to bottom, you see intelligence. Yes. Constantly. Because yeah. you're seeing people constantly being confronted with problems and constantly having to figure out how to solve them. Yeah. You know, like you have, whether it's Gary Sinise in the simulator or the guys who are trying to figure out the air scrubber with this is what we have on the. That's just intelligence after intelligence after intelligence. Yeah. That's because they're doing something. Or if you listen to Aaron Sorkin dialogue. You're going to show intelligence because right, the ideas right, right. are intelligent. The way they use language is intelligent. Like yeah. you have to do something. Well, yeah. And it, it, it's so much my pet peeve with my, with my students is they go, this is the most brilliant bank robber or scientist or philosopher or whatever. And then they don't do anything particularly smart. And part of the reason is, is my students aren't always that smart. You know, <laughs> so you got to be able to figure out the really smart thing. Yeah, well, they're trying to make their subjects vulnerable, but you've got to present the intelligence first, then make them vulnerable and relatable because they're doing or getting caught up in doing dumb stuff. You've got to lay the groundwork for one so that you can show the uh, the um, opposite end of it and make that person more human, more relatable in that way. That's that's how you handle a situation like that. But what do you think about detective stuff like Silence of the Lambs or Seven? I mean, you know Morgan Freeman is intelligent. He does oh, not yeah. have to go to a, a, a library. There's an air. I think that's how you can show intelligence is to have that radiate off of you as a person in your interactions with people. And great dialogue, obviously, fantastic writer coming in and writing dialogue that makes you seem or sound or exude intelligence. I think that's possible. Well, part of it, too, and this goes into, I, I'd say several different things. One is is that you see them looking at a thing and see them understanding what's happening. Yes. So yeah. again, it's because I'm spending so much time in Star Trek lately is one of the things we talked about a lot is how brilliant an observer Kirk is. Yes. Is that he walks into the mirror universe and within seconds, he is starting to figure, and you can see the wheels turn in his head yep. and you can see how he's taking in the information and then how he's acting based on what he's figuring out. And yeah, that's yeah, yeah. perfect for detective stuff. An another thing is when the, when the characters are ahead of the audience, like mm. you see in a detective show that a character looks at, oh, there's a, you know, a coaster that's wet and they, yeah. they look at it for a second and we go, I don't know what the fuck that's about. And then later on in the movie, you find out that it's wet because that's where they put down the poison right. after they killed the person. And you're like, oh, wow, that guy figured that out way back in scene 24. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. definitely how we show intelligence. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean to me, it's all, it's all, and this is, I'm sure you had this in your acting class. It's mm -hmm. all about active choices. Yes, active choices and finding the way to radiate that energy from an, how can I say this, from an organic place within yourself. That's how you do it. Because then right. once you can, once you embody intelligence, there's a different approach you take to how you dole out the information that is contained within your lines. There's a different way that you have command of a room or command of a scene because of how certain things are written in that in your energy as you're fully fleshing out your character to take over a situation or to or to um, 
push the direction of a scene in a certain way. Yeah. Um, I, I have a, so I just thought of a story, which maybe I'll tell in a minute, but I have, I have a question okay. for you. First, yes. Which is, so I've already said that I think it's very, very difficult for a screenwriter to write a super intelligent character if they are not themselves intelligent. Oh, yeah. Can an actor who isn't necessarily the smartest person in the world play a super intelligent character? I think that's really tough. I mean, you have to essentially be like Forrest Gump as an actor to be able to convey intelligence if you're not that smart. I mean, because you have or you have to have an overdeveloped sense of your ego or overdeveloped sense of confidence um, and not be aware that you're dumb. I think that's the number one thing. You have to be unaware that you're not smart um, in order to do that. If you're not actually smart, you have to be unaware of it. I think that's how you do it. Well, and I, I do think – I don't think you have to be quite as smart as the, maybe the character you're playing. No, no, no. But you have to be able to understand what you're saying. Yes. And it might take you – let's say you know this character came up with that thought instantaneously, and you I, took a week of studying the script to understand that thought. <laughs> but by the time you got there, you got there. And so, it's so you know, yeah. it kind of works. The, the story that popped into my brain um, is the first movie I wrote is a film called Stonebrook, which I think is still available places that stars Seth oh, wow. Green. Um, okay. And uh, and it was a con movie. And so I had to write a whole bunch of cons, which I love. <laughs> and I've, I've written multiple kind of con artist things. And The Assistance is a con movie. Yeah, and, and one of them was a pool hustle. And the, director is shoot, and the director is shooting the scene. And I'm watching him shoot it. And I'm going, that's not, you're not doing it right. And I pull the director aside and kind of go, so why did you do it this way? And he goes... And it became very clear that the director did not understand the hustle. He didn't Oof. understand what the con was, is that the whole point was they were conning a pool hustler and that there was no way they could actually beat the pool hustler. And they were manipulating him with money going in and out of envelopes and of someone making a distraction and stuff like that. And the director was having the, the main character be really good at pool and oh. actually beat him. And I'm like, no, no, no. He's a pool hustler. We, wow. we can't beat him. That's what the con is. And I and I remember like having I pulled him off the set, and yeah. he, he still like I could see the wheels turning as he's yeah. trying to figure it out. And this hit, you know, I, the script had been written a month before. He, <laughs> you know, he, he just didn't fundamentally didn't understand what the scene was about. Wow, to spend you know? I mean to shoot a film and not understand. That's there is that director trying to exude intelligence who's not that smart. I mean, it's funny. He's he's still a friend. He's a talented person in many ways. Not really the best director. Um, Fair enough. But still, go check out Stonebrook. It's uh, somewhere available. It's it's an okay movie. There you go. So uh, thank you very much, Matthew, for your suggestion. I hope that we gave an intelligent response Hello. to your question. Um, and thank you to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. We, we really enjoy your support. We love all these shorts questions. And you know what? The crazier, the better. So, you know, yeah. they don't always have to just be about movies. Um, so thank you for all your support. For my super smart partner, John Roca. I am the whimsically in. Uh, let me say something else. <laughs> oh man, if you could see what was happening <laughs> on the screen at this moment. But I am Steve Morris, and we'll see you next time on another Cinephile Short. Hello, the Cinephile fans. Welcome to another episode of the Cinephile Shorts here, brought to you by the Cinephiles. That's Steve Morris and John Roca here. Excited to be getting into another 
topic from one of our patrons. Paul sends in this one. And for those of you who don't know, or maybe it's your first time listening to these, we do these shorts for our patrons. Patrons send in questions, thoughts, and comments. Steve and I take a few minutes to answer them. And Steve, this one comes to us from Paul. It says, hello, Steve and John. I recently watched Pig. I love that movie. And was genuinely impressed, impressed by Cage's performance in that movie. Cage has made terrible straight-to-DVD slash streaming movies, but he also makes some cult classics like Mandy, Color Out of Space, and the aforementioned Pig. Can you guys discuss the evolution of Nicolas Cage as an actor? What makes him unique and special among Hollywood actors? What is the key to his success as an actor? And what are your thoughts on one Nicolas Cage? Steve, please. Well, well, let me ask you a question first. I want to ask our classic cinephiles question. Yeah. When did you first come to Nicolas Cage? Do you remember? (laughs) Unknowingly, I came to Nicolas Cage and Peggy Sue Got Married and mm. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but I and Valley Girl. Well, I didn't even watch Valley Girl, to be honest with you. What's my first? I think Interview with a Vampire was my first experience with Nicolas Cage, and then Raising Arizona solidified him. I think that's the answer to you, Steve. I had to work my way through it. Raising Arizona is the first time that I understood who Nicolas Cage was, what Nicolas Cage was, and looked forward to seeing what he was going to be doing with his career as an actor. So when you said interview with a vampire, do you mean vampire's kiss? I, I thought I said vampire's kiss. If I said interview with a vampire, that's my mistake. You know, I'm not in the Schmodown anymore, so I don't have to remember these things. No, I've already I've already docked you down a point in the system. I've got a whole thing over here <laughs> to rate how is John Roca doing on every single day. <laughs> right. um, I asked because Vampire's Kiss was a movie that was quoted with my friends because it is so weird. It's out there, dude. It is so and so I had this kind of peripheral awareness of Nicolas Cage. Val, from the same what you said, Valley Girl, Fast Times, mm-hmm. and one hundred percent agree. Raising Arizona, man, I love that movie so much, and I and that's you know there's list is so long, but I'd love to do that on the show. Oh my god, I would love to do it. Raising Arizona, Are you kidding? Yeah. That yeah. is a classic, absolute so classic. Good. I don't care what anybody says. Well, and the thing that's weird, and particularly like you think of those early movies, you know, like like Raising Arizona, then he does Moonstruck, and mm-hmm. you know, there's where. Here's the thing about Nicolas Cage. I don't understand who he is and who he is as an actor and what is a character and what is not. I don't know. I never know. With him? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Uh, Yeah, but I love that about him. That's what I mean. Every time you see him in a movie, it's an experience. And the thing is, no one can say Nicolas Cage wasn't committed to what he was doing. That's the gift of Nicolas Cage. Even if you're watching, and and Paul's being a little cruel here, I think some of his straight-to-DVD films, he's absolutely watchable in those films. You may not like the overall film, but he is worth watching in those films. And he's such an eclectic actor with all the numerous um, characters that he chooses to take on. He even did a Christian film, one of those Left Behind films. Mm. So he certainly has no parameters about where he's willing to go and no concern. I mean, you go from Mandy to a Christian film, like you couldn't find two more completely different approaches to filmmaking and subject material within those films. And he's able to just kind of seamlessly blend into all this stuff and do so well uh, and endure the, some of the criticism from some of the fans. But in the end, he's the last one laughing because a lot of people now are thinking he's a real dark horse candidate to get nominated for best actor again for pig. Right. Which I still haven't seen. It's oh. totally mine kind of movie. It's on Hulu. Yeah. I, I, things have been a little complicated in my life. <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry. Fair enough. But it's a film that you can disappear into, and I think you'll love it. Steve. I know. It's to- I know like, what it's about. I've seen clips yeah. from it. It's totally my kind of movie. Well, here's the thing I was thinking about Nick Cage is that he's fearless. 
Yes. Is that his way of jumping into a part? I mean, even, you know, so you've got those early movies where he played characters that are way out there, like Vampire's Kiss, but also like Wild at Heart, you know, where yeah. he's just jumping into things. But then you get to that bizarre time where The Rock, Con Air, where he becomes like an action star. Yeah. He gets yoked. And it's like, <laughs> oh my God. And the thing is, we did Con Air on the Cinephiles. I mean, yeah. It must be a fine film if we were to to, to do it on our show. <laughs> and then and then it's even though I do not like this movie, he's great in face off. Yes. Right? And and he brings it in face off, even totally. though he, he's got this new film coming about coming out. The trailer is called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent with him and Pedro Pascal. And Pedro Pascal plays this super Nicolas Cage fan who hires Nicolas Cage for a million dollars to be at his birthday party. And the first wax figure you see is his his character from Face Off with the double gold uh, uh, guns uh, guns and and the suit and everything. It's so perfect. Face Off of all the John Woo films on the American side of things. Face Off is the one that has the biggest cult following. The other ones uh, law of diminishing returns. But that's the one that people still talk about. And he's great in it. And he goes super crazy in that film for sure. Yeah. It's absolutely not. Well, and the thing, but then he also is able to take that intensity and commitment and do yeah. something like Leaving Las Vegas, which right. is a movie I swore I would never watch a second time. Wow. Because it was just so beautifully, horribly painful. Yeah. I mean, it just, and and then there's, you know, there's also things like adaptation where oh. he's willing to just jump oh, he's in. Still good in adaptation. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, and and I agree. This new Nicolas Cage movie, it, it brings all of that together. Yeah, like is it brings his self awareness and his commitment to doing a thing, mm-hmm. and the nuttiness. I mean, I, I I can't wait to see that. Yeah, me too. And I think this is where uh, I have been enjoying the Cage Assance or the Nick Assance that is happening right now because or Nicola Assance, whatever you want to say. But I. <laughs> I love it because I've always loved him as an actor and I've never digged him for doing those straight to DVD films. You know why? Cause there's a difference between him and Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis is phoning it in just to collect a paycheck to pay off whatever he needs to pay off. Nicholas Cage has actually committed to the roles that he does. So I've never denigrated him in that way as an actor. I've always looked forward to seeing the ones that bubble up. And I read an interview with him recently and he said, cause a lot of, cause one of these, I can't remember what uh, publication they asked him why do you do a lot of these films with like first time filmmakers or newer filmmakers? And he says, because they're the people coming in who are going to push me, who are going to challenge me, who are going to like create some stuff that I never thought you could do. And I can create stuff with them that I never thought I was going to do on screen, or I can be inspired by them. New ideas excite me is what he said. And I like to play in the sandbox with new directors. And that is so good because so many actors at his stature with an Oscar could be quite um, snooty or snobbish or be a jerk to the first-time filmmakers. Now he's willing to commit to the vision and then offer his two cents. Uh, and I know speaking with Richard Stanley, I interviewed him uh, after Color Out of Space, and we talked about it, and he said, Nick is such a great collaborative person on set. He's not pushy. He's not demanding. He has thoughts. He has ideas. And he'll challenge you, but he'll be willing to hear your side of things. And if you can convince him, he's on your team. And that's a great thing to have. As an you want an intelligent actor, you don't want an automaton. And Nick pushing that boundary with all these directors produces stuff like Mandy and Pig and other things from newer directors, and it's great to see. 
Well, and I think there's a weird thing where you look at an actor who was a movie star, yeah, and then you look at the time where they're not in those big movies, right? And you go, oh, how can you do that? And it's like because that's his job. Yeah, you right. know, there's so few people that you know. There's Tom Cruise, and basically nobody else. <laughs> Yeah. who stays a movie star for <laughs> yeah. more than a couple of years. That's and then true. at that point, you decide, well, what are you going to do? And Nick Cage has clearly decided, I want to keep doing interesting stuff. And yes, sometimes yeah. that might lead him down a pathway to a straight-to-DVD thing that's not so fun. Right. But like, but, but like he's, he's a working actor. And, and my guess is that he shows up just as committed to that straight-to-DVD thing as he did to Leaving Las Vegas or Adaptation or Raising Arizona or anything else. Right. That, and know. that's the gift of him. And you can depend on that, you know, and, you know, I think of Greg Tolan. What, what, what was it? One of the one of the cinematographers was walking out of a meeting with Orson Welles. Famous story ran into Greg Toland, who was sitting there in the waiting room, waiting to talk to Orson Welles. Greg had already been established in the yeah. industry and he was waiting. And the guy said to him, why are you waiting to talk to Orson Welles? He's a rookie filmmaker. What are you? And he said, because. This guy is going to teach me something. The new directors are going to teach me something and challenge me as a cinematographer. And so that goes back. What Nicolas Cage does goes back to the spirit of that. And I know some of you may be listening going, oh, really? Ninja assassin. That's not the <laughs> point. It's the overall uh, impetus and intention. Yes, you can throw Wicker Man out there, but I'll throw Weatherman at you. I'll throw Matchstick Men at you. I'll throw yeah. a number of films. Even Trapped in Paradise is a stupid comedy, but it's so much fun to see him committed to doing these jokes with Dana Carvey and John Lovitz as his, as brothers. And then you look at Family Man, which I think is one of these really damn good Christmas movies. Yes, I know Brett Ratner directed, which is uncomfortable, but the film itself says something really strong about the power of second chances, about what's really important in this world. And so he has these fantastically beautiful performances in so many films, uh, and he's committed to them. And that's a that's a, something to be admired and respected, in my opinion. You know what I think he is? He's the antithesis of Hollywood conservatism. And this is what I mean by that. <laughs> is that is that because what what Hollywood does is that and what actors in Hollywood are pressured to do yeah. is the same but different. Okay, you were successful as this and therefore you just have to keep doing that because yeah. that's how people see you and that's how they want you to be. And that to you know you brought up Bruce Willis, that's kind of like I have to keep being Bruce Willis. And Nicolas Cage, from the very first thing that he did until today, he is going, I'm going to break through expectations. I'm going, because that's the thing. That's why what I, I said at the very beginning, I don't know how to explain Nicolas Cage. Right. And this is why. It's because he is always pushing it. I want to push it to a new place. I want to get somewhere <laughs> new. And you know what? Yeah, you're not going to be the biggest movie star in the world doing that. And you are going to do some weird stuff. And yeah. some of it's not going to work. But it's you going know? to be memorable, Steve. Yeah. You're oh, yeah. going to leave a legacy. And he is already established from his earlier work of leaving a legacy. The fact that he's still relevant, as you said, Steve, he's not a movie star. Movie star? But he is a movie star. Yeah. He's an A-lister uh, to a degree. And so Tom is the one doing those action franchises. Nicholas is never going to do that, probably. And so he did it a couple of times. Yeah, he did. Right. He tried to do it a couple of times. Didn't quite. But like the fact that, right, National Treasure, all of that, that was in the past. But now he's in this place where he's at, you know, and I like that he is becoming almost, and this may be crazy for some people to think about, he's becoming an elder statesman of acting. And <laughs> that may be coming and a lot of people are going to have to really accept that as the truth. What I really have to accept about that is 
Man, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know what part of the thing is, uh, and this is one of the magical secrets that people don't always understand, is that the experience of making the movie isn't necessarily connected with what kind of movie it is or how good yeah. the movie is. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. sometimes you pick a movie. I'm sure, like if I was, you know, right now my knee hurts, but if my knee wasn't hurting and someone said, Hey Steve, we got a really crappy movie. It's got a lot of sword fights, and we'd like you to just do some sword fights. I'd be like, <laughs> that sounds like a blast. Sign me up. You, you know, it's like, and so it could be too that Nicolas Cage, yes, he looks at a movie like Pig and goes, oh, yeah. this is something I could really dig into. But he also could look at a movie that's, you know, a weird, low budget action thing and go, this would be a fun way to spend a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, why not? Shooting some guns and blowing some stuff up. And yeah, why not? All in a safe way. All in a yeah. safe way. Absolutely. I would love that too. Are, are, are you, have you seen any of his most recent stuff with Mandy, Color Out of Space, Wally's no, Wonderland, any no, of this? No, no, nothing. I challenge you, Steve Morris, on a day that you're feeling absolutely not in the best place, to take a day and go on a cage marathon and watch all these films back to back to back. And don't be surprised that by the end of the day, you've got a big, stupid girl on your face and he's helped you to forget what is going on. So I will do it on one condition. What's that? We got to come right back here and do another short after it. I'm done. Done and done. Absolutely. I would more than willing to do that and talk about the overall those films, not, you know, specifically each one and spend 20 minutes on it, but an overall conversation (laughs) about your feelings about him as an actor now. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks to Paul for sending in that question. This was fun to talk about Nicolas Cage with Steve. I love talking about Nicolas Cage, really one of my favorite actors. And it sounds like Steve might be on the precipice of reappreciating the greatness of Nicolas Cage. <laughs> we shall see here. But thank you all so much for being patrons of the Cinevals. We appreciate it madly. We love your questions. And thanks for supporting us during all this time. Right, Steve? Absolutely. <laughs> I can do more. <laughs> look, look. Is there sometimes... any information we give out at this? Here, in the all right. Here, here, yeah. Here's a little secret for those patrons listening. You get a little bit behind the scenes. John and I don't always know what we're doing, <laughs> but here's what happens. And and this is five years of us doing this show. Is I'm making eye contact with him, and I yeah. know he's about to stop, and he's yeah. like, "Oh, then I should finish it." <laughs> this time. I didn't know what he wanted me to do. I thought I was going to throw in a word and then he was going to finish it up, but I'm now going to finish it up. I just want to say, if you want to suggest a short, you could do it right here. Just send us a message. We look at all of them. We don't get to all of them. And of course, all of your support matters. So thank you all of you. And we will see you next time on another Cinephile Short. Hello and welcome to another edition of Cinephile Shorts. I am Steve Morris here with my partner, the outlaw, John Roca. Hello. And today, Today's suggestion comes from a cinephile fan named Steve Morris. Steve <laughs> Morris asks, what is proper movie theater etiquette? And this Ooh. is where I would like to start, because I feel like, as you and I are now well-established film experts, yeah, sure, we probably have some opinions about how you're supposed to behave at a movie theater. And here is my first question for you, John. Okay. You're buying your tickets in advance. Yes, do you buy where where do you buy your tickets first of all where are your seats usually now listen it's been a bit because i get screenings so i rarely have to oh, buy right, tickets right. nowadays but when i do i like to sit near the back half of the theater on an uh, on the end uh i have found that a lot of people like sit in the middle and i used to like to sit in the middle for sure when i was younger but now i like to sit on the end i like to s- spread my legs out a little bit and I like to have a chair or two between me and the next person. That so was I my can, next question. So I can, yeah, so I can really savor the film and not have to listen to the inane chatter of people who don't understand 
film etiquette, and we'll talk through inopportune at inopportune moments of the film. So uh, for me, one of my yeah. first classes at film school was from Tom Holman. There are some people that say that THX stands for Tom Holman's Experiment. <laughs> he was one of wow. Lucas's big sound guys, and he was the guy behind THX. Wow. And so everyone at USC, it was a big lecture, and it was like one of the mind-blowing lessons about sound. Right. And he said that when they set up a theater for THX, it really is the seat in the dead center of the theater that is set up for the best sound. So that had an influence on me. I tend to want to sit about two rows in front of that. So okay. I'd like to be a little closer to the screen. Okay. Um, and then I agree. I always feel a little bit weird, like for a movie that's going to sell out. I don't really want to get my ticket right next to somebody I don't know. I would rather have a seat or two between me. So that is what I will try to set out. Yeah. How important is it to you what screen you go to see it? Oh, yeah, I think it depends on the film, right? If I'm going to see an independent film or a smaller film or a medium-sized film, I don't care about the screen too much. To me, it's about where am I going? What theater am I going to? Is this a theater where people understand and respect the experience? Or is this a theater that has a bunch of assholes that go into movie theaters and get on their phone? Because I don't care what screen it is, that's going to deter me from enjoying the movie. So for me, I have to be very careful about that. When it comes to great film or films that are like um going to take advantage of the medium yes yeah. yeah, event films or whatever like marvel films or whatever or star wars films i like to go see it back when the cinerama dome was open go see it there or at the best possible film i or theater i can or the imax theaters that are authentically imax theaters right i like to go to those theaters yeah to me definitely if it's a big film i i love the dolby atmos digital projection it with the recliner I love the recliner because yeah. I get a lot of space. That's real comfortable with a fantastic screen and a great sound system. I think that's great. Yeah. But I agree with you. It's like if I'm going to see a little indie film or a documentary and I'm in a, in the small theater, that's, that's totally fine and enjoyable. Yeah. So you're arriving at the uh, theater. Okay. What time should one get there? Well, I always like to come at least 10 to 15 minutes before the film starts. Now, with screenings, it's different because I don't have to worry about trailers, and it's never full, at least down in San Diego now. So I can get there five minutes before the film starts. I'm totally fine. But I like to go 15 minutes before the film starts. Now, if we're talking AMC, that's a separate conversation because that's 20 minutes, 30 minutes of trailers. Yes. So I will get there maybe five to 10 minutes after the supposed runtime of the film or screening time of the film because then I can get my popcorn or whatever comfortably and settle in and watch the film. So that's usually my approach. Most theaters, 15 minutes till um amc about five or ten minutes after the actual screening time i so i there was this moment i always love trailers always mm -hmm. loved, always great mm -hmm. and there's this moment where it went from two or three trailers to 25 minutes of commercials <laughs> you know what i mean and like there's such a difference i think this is we, people listening to the show have heard us talk about the ArcLight cinemas yeah. in los angeles which were the great palaces of movies who really respected people that liked movies and they would have three trailers Yes. And zero commercials, none of that bullshit screen, whatever it is, where there are commercials and ads and trivia contests and stuff like I hate all that stuff. Right. right. So so I, I would tend to arrive right on time for the movie if I can, if it's like an AMC. And that way, maybe I'll miss a couple of trailers and it'll be OK. Mm -hmm. What's your uh, what's your order? Are you always getting food? Yeah, usually. I mean um now with where i go to san diego i grab pretzel bites shove them in my vest and sneak them into the theater 
but I always buy a Coke at the theater as a way of saying like, hey, I'm still going to give a little bit of money here. But yeah, I like to get popcorn. If I'm in the mood for popcorn, which is only nine times out of 10, I like to get popcorn um, and hot. I'm, I'm, I'm a super anal dick about hot fresh. popcorn. Yeah. Yeah. Fresh. It, 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 you know, because I have eaten my share of cold popcorn and it drives me nuts. So I like to test the warmth of it and I will absolutely make them pop another bunch of it if they don't have any fresh stuff and it's all cold. And I get it. I'm the dick. And I know some of these people get upset when I ask them because, I mean, they're working minimum wage. It's a shit job when you ask them to make some popcorn for you. But I'm really anal about that. And then maybe I'll have peanut M&Ms or Reese's Pieces if I'm in the mood and I've done my workouts. Uh, Do you add butter to your popcorn? No, I never add butter. I don't need it. Um, So generally, if I go to a movie by myself, I don't usually get anything. Oh, wow. Nothing. But if I go with the family, yes, we'll get the popcorn. Uh, the, the Karen is a big, likes the, the butter on it. I mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of it. Um, Jax wants to get an icy and an ice cream and some candy and some, and it's just like trying to talk him down to like, you get one thing. I will now introduce uh, my first major pet peeve. Go ahead. Yes. You're waiting in the line for the concessions mm-hmm. and the person in front of you gets to the front of the line, looks up at the big menu and goes, ah, so what do I want? Oh yeah. And it's like, fuck you yeah, yeah, you should yeah. have your order ready yeah the moment you get up and you should have thought through not only that you should have thought through exactly how you're going to say it oh, to yeah. make it as efficient as possible listen i think you let's be real you and i are not um strangers to the fast food experience and sure to me essentially theaters are essentially giving you fast food so you know what a fucking theater has available to you. And if you've been standing in line and you're still figuring out what you want by the time you get to the front, fuck you. Like you should not be, you should immediately be kicked out of the line or kicked out of in front of the person and said, go back to the back of the line. That'll give you more time to figure out what you want to show up. uh, uh, You know, if you're first in line, fine, you can look at the menu, whatever. But if you know, there's a line behind you and you're being super anal about everything and being a massive jerk, Fuck you. And being and taking forever to order shit. Fuck you. Instead, now, if you've got five kids or whatever, that's a separate conversation because that's a lot of madness. And look, but then again, you chose to have the kids. So, you know, what do I have to pay for the fact that you chose to have those kids? Uh, it, it just gets frustrating on so many levels. So know what you want by the time you get up there so you can be in and out. It's efficiency. And I hate it when I see it in the fast food as well. You know what the fuck they serve. You went there because you were in the mood for it. You should already have an idea of what you want. Well, and the same thing, too, of like, you know, you're going to have to pay for it. Yeah. So you probably should have that credit card out or the cash out or whatever the thing 100%. is. You shouldn't get all your food and then have to, you know, grab your wallet when yeah. your hands are full of popcorn. Like, this is not how you're supposed to do it. How much like, is it? You know how much it is. It's right there. You know how much it is? A lot of fucking money. <laughs> <laughs> Far too much. I, I, I've ever seen like how much an, an actual tub of popcorn costs. Yeah. And it's like three cents, you know. Yeah. Right. It's an incredibly cheap bit of food. <laughs> um, okay, you're in the theater. Yeah. Uh, can people put their feet up on a chair in front of them? It depends. If it's a full theater, no. No. If if it's a, you know, if there's 20 people in the theater, then yes, I've done it when there's like barely anybody in the theater. Absolutely. But don't kick the fucking chair because then that affects the whole row. So anyone sitting in that row is going to feel that vibration and it's irritating. 
you can put your feet on the chair, but be respectful. Don't slam them up there. Put them up there if you feel the need to put them up there. Now, most ushers will tell you to put them down. Yeah. But you can if there's no, there's hardly anybody in the theater, fine. Put them up there. But be respectful of the fact if anybody's in that row. Um, and, of course, it's going to make noise if you bang your feet on top of the chair. So just be respectful of it. Have you ever seen someone put their feet up on a chair with their shoes off? Yes. I with have their too. socks off. I've seen it with their socks off. Uh, no, not acceptable. Not acceptable behavior. Um, what about saving a seat at a crowded theater? Okay, this I'm okay with because someone got there. Now, saving seat in, saving people in line when 20 people show up, that's fucking irritating. But in a theater, I think that's fine because if someone got there earlier and knows there's 10 people, 15 people, that, then them saving seats, that's fine because someone got there ahead of time. That to me still fits within the social construct of etiquette for a movie theater. Now, if they show up late and they're trying to get you to move seats so they can bring their people in, fuck that. Fuck that. Um, so fortunately, we don't have to deal with this too much anymore because most of the time it's assigned seating. So you, yes, don't, right. you don't have that thing. But I think I tend to agree with you up until a certain point. Mm-hmm. When the trailers are running and you're saving eight seats and there are people who can't find a place to sit, we're getting into the area of this is kind of fucked up. Yeah, because the thing, the other thing, too, is what isn't acceptable behavior is go, hey, dude, save me a seat and you show up 20 minutes late to the movie. Right. That is an except. I agree with that. Yeah, that yeah. You, you know, it's the save me a seat. There is a there is a, a statute of limitations on that. And there's a certain point where it's like, you know what? You lose. Yeah. Do you how much do you care about sitting with your people? Oh, yeah, I care about that, of course. Yeah. If, I mean, if it's our crew, like we used to go way back when. Um, yeah, uh, sitting with my people is absolutely what I want to do. Yeah, I care. But if it's if if it's sit alone, and, but still get to see the movie, I don't care that that much. Oh, okay. okay. So, you know, like, you know, so so if we have to break it up, because, you know, whatever, I'll be the guy that sits off by himself. I'm not okay. gonna talk to anybody anyway. Sure, sure. I've done that before with our crew. Mm-hmm. Where I haven't liked where we're sitting. There are people around us who are making a lot of noise. I have moved to sit by myself. Like La La Land, we went to a theater that was so full of people and they were all chewing and talking and munching and singing. I was, fuck this. I went and sat all all at the front of that section by myself in one of those lone seats and in, and just watched the movie from there because that really just gets on my nerves. I can't, I can't block that out, you know? Well, let's, let's get onto that topic. So uh, noises. Yeah unwrapping your candy and shuffling through your purse and (laughs) just not even talk about talking first. How do you feel about this? I think one of the worst things that ever happened was there was a generational change and kids grew up watching movies at their houses. And now when they go in their living rooms and now when they go to the theater, they actually think they're in their fucking living room. Yes. And so they're opening candy during like the fucking emotional moments loud opening of bags of candy during like really someone like main character dies or something or anything like that or ruffling through their purse or their phones go off i mean all of that kind of stuff drives me insane you know because it's not that difficult to understand what you need to do when you walk in the theater it is really not that difficult don't open the you can wait till after the person dies to open your fucking candy you don't need to have it right now as the person is dying be aware, be social, be socially conscious, be aware of the people around you. 
Well, I think that much like you should figure out your order while you're in line before you get to the front, before the movie has started, if you have loud candy, maybe unwrap it a little bit so that you don't have this problem. You know, like kind of think through the stuff. Yeah. Just get it open ahead of time. Prepare, people. So, Jack, I almost called you Jacks. (laughs) Yes, Dad. I don't know what that Freudian slip says about me or our relationship. Sure. <laughs> um, so you might have noticed, John, <laughs> Thank you. that you're sitting in a chair. It has two arms. Yes. Where are you putting your arms? Is there arm etiquette at the movie theater? Ooh, I think there is. I think there is. If you're sharing the armrest, then you have an opportunity to either put your arm at the front of the armrest or the back of the armrest, depending on what the other person, if the person is sitting there already, I think they kind of lay claim to the armrest, certain sections of the armrest, especially if their arms are already on the armrest, right? I have gotten into, I got into a physical altercation with somebody who thought my arm was infringing on his wife's uh, arm uh, at a movie theater. He switched seats with her waited for me to adjust my arm and then he slammed his elbow into my arm to instigate a physical interaction between oh us. my god insane he thought because his wife was pregnant he thought i was like doing whatever and i'm like you're a fucking idiot man and i got into a big fight with that guy verbally in tower heist the ben stiller film and it was ridiculous how angry this guy was um but i told him i said how come your wife didn't say anything if she felt i was because i wasn't aware of it. Why didn't right. she say something? I would have absolutely kept my arm, my arm away. If she's pregnant, would have absolutely had consideration here. Um, but I think they were having issues and he just took it out on me for whatever reason. And we had an altercation. So, um, but yeah, I don't but like touching. You shouldn't be touching skin to skin. That should not be. Happening. No, not to a stranger. Absolutely no. not. No, no, no. And if you, and I'd like to tuck my arms inside the armrest most of the time um, when I'm sitting there because my arms are so long I like, and my chest is a little wider. I like to keep my arms like under in a more comfortable position under the armrests. So I'm a big guy. And so uh, Mm -hmm. I'm hyper aware of these things. It's also why those recliners are nice because they're usually much more spread out, a lot more room. Here's my feeling about it is I believe that you do have a legal right to one armrest. Oh, but you don't necessarily have a legal right to both armrests. Fuck no. So if you're going to, you don't get to just spread out because everyone has to share these to some degree. Mm-hmm. There's also a cup holder usually in the armrest. Yeah. If I have my soda in that cup holder, I am to some degree, I feel claiming this armrest for my right arm. Yeah. If I have my cup in the other one, then I shouldn't be aggressively on this one so much because I've claimed the other one. Yeah. There's also the, and it really has to do with strangers because if you're between two friends, well, you know, it's not yeah. such a big issue. You but, but someone who comes in and spreads out onto both armrests, I've seen, I'm sure you've seen this too. There's like weird manly dominance yeah. shit that goes on in movie theater sometimes. It's like, yeah, it's, it's my armrest, dude, you know? Yeah, it's small dick shit. It's small dick shit. Yeah. When is it acceptable? Is it acceptable to talk during the trailers? You know, I used to not think so. I used to be upset when people talk to trailers. Now, because you can watch trailers at home or on YouTube or whatever, it doesn't bother. It still bothers me, but I don't say anything. Like, I don't do that let look behind me that I'd like to do when people are talking at the wrong times. I just kind of let it go because I'm like, I can watch this trailer later. It's not a big deal. I've already watched the trailer. So whatever. But yeah, I used to think that was an issue uh, before they started popping up on YouTube. 
I think before the trailers start, if it's that pre-show shit, talk all you want. Yeah, yeah I think once the trailers line. start, hopefully you'll keep it to a minimum, but I'm not mad about it. Like, you know, you got to mm-hmm. talk about something. You got to talk about something. Yeah. Once the movie starts, essentially all speech should be cut off unless it's absolutely necessary. I agree. Yeah. And if you're a person who generally doesn't understand what the fuck is going on in a movie, you should sit far away from everybody else. Because mm-hmm. if you need, you know, your boyfriend or your girlfriend to explain, why did he do that? You know, well, don't be right behind me. <laughs> like I, it, it's it's funny, the explanations of what just happened in the movie almost bugs me more than any other kind of talking in the yeah. film. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that one really just bothers me. Yeah. In general, I mean, well, I, you know, and it's funny. I remember when I learned like, oh, don't in general go to see movies in Glendale. Yeah. There's oh. so many people talking through movies in Glendale. I don't know why. Perfect. And again, this is why the Arclight was so great because we it was the temple of cinema and yeah. everyone went in there with respect, you know. You if if you started talking at the Arclight, the crowd itself would turn on you and no one would have a problem with it. And you I mean, you risk getting uh rode out on a rail if you talked during Arclight movies, which I loved. Grove has gotten worse. Um, and yes, you're right. Any AMC is not where you want to go see a film if you don't want to hear people talking. That's for damn sure. Yeah, I, I it's I, and I understand like sometimes someone talking back to the screen or cheering and laughing. That's oh sure. Oh, sure, that's fine. Sure, sure. But chatting away. Yeah. It's too much. And, and, and can we just say it goes without saying that talking on your phone is even worse? Yeah. Oh my God, yes. And listen, I want to say something to all of you who have grandmothers and grandfathers. They should not be going to see films that they need to be talking through the whole film to understand what is happening. I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I, I get it. I, I love and respect the elderly. <laughs> but there need to be elderly only screenings so that all of them can be in the same place and talk as loud as they fucking want uh, while they're watching the movie. But I think coming in at three o'clock, four o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock, uh, to watch a movie and your 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 old mom and or sorry, your old grandfather, your old grandmother are having to talk through the whole movie so that grandpa or grandma can understand what's happening. Nah, man, I can't have it. I can't have it. I can't have it. You had your time. You watched a lot of movies for decades. Now you got to respect the fact that other people for decades want to watch the movies and experience them the way you used to where nobody talked. I bet nobody talked in the 1940s and 1950s, 1960s. I would put money on it. These are people that wore three-piece suits to fucking ball games in the playoffs, hats, ties. There's no way they spoke through movies. No way. How about kids? Listen, you have a kid, so what do you want me to say? I, I, <laughs> I mean, my personal choice, no. No kids in the theater unless I'm watching an animated film. If they keep their, if they're quiet and they watch the movie, no problem at all. But kids tend to kick that seat in front of them because they're just totally oblivious. And I get real, I mean, I, I remember one time I did turn around to a mom and I was like, listen, I don't want to say anything to irritate you, but you have to stop your kid from kicking my chair. This is five times now he's done it. And she was like, he's a child. I go, I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. I shouldn't have to pay for the fact that you had a child. I shouldn't have to pay for it. Respect my space. Unless you want me to sit behind you and kick kick your chair five times. So I get it because it's kids and you have to respect that. I get it. But then again, I have a line, man. So so if you're going to bring your kid into the world, you're responsible for your kid's behavior. That's the deal. Yeah. And there have been times where my kid did not behave correctly. <laughs> and it is embarrassing. But I apologized and yeah. tell my kid, you can't do that. I mean, yeah. It, 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 did you know, by the way, there are these like, 
parent they usually yes. call them mommy screenings. Yes, nine a.m., ten a.m. in the morning. Love it. Yeah. It's great. It's not. Oh. <laughs> it's like the worst. Oh, I bet. It is, oh, it is fucking chaos. It's if like, you love films, I can't imagine it's a good thing. That's it's true. like watching a movie in the monkey house in the zoo. You know what I mean? It's just like kids climbing everywhere and screaming. And but we 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 went to them. <laughs> oh, no, fortunately, no. my ADHD kid. Yeah, you put a screen on. He is out. That's like he is. Yeah, he from the time he was three. If we took him to a movie, he once the movie started, he didn't move or speak. That's you know, yeah. um, and because because I think it, this is one of the places you should be training your child. This is yeah. acceptable behavior in a movie theater. This is not acceptable yeah. behavior in a movie theater. What about getting up in the middle of the movie? I mean, obviously, if you got to go pee, you got to go pee. Yeah, yeah, whatever. That's fine. There are sometimes people that get up and they leave and they come back and they get up and they come back. and they Oh, yeah. I don't understand back. that. You know, I don't understand that. Unless it's a family emergency, I don't understand that. If it's your business, what are you doing in the movie theater? Like, stay out of your, stay out of the movie theater. You know, yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of films you can stream at home. Well, or, or, or at the very least, get a seat at the aisle. Yeah, that's a good point. Get a seat at the aisle or get a seat down below in the front row so you can keep getting up and getting out. I don't mean all the way at the front. I mean the front to the middle section. Get a seat down there. And that way you can get up and get out as many times as you want without affecting people. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's a crowded theater. Someone has to get by you. Mm-hmm. Do you stand up? It depends on the time. Like, Oh, that's a good point. Right? Because yeah. to me, I'm like, if you're arriving late to the movie theater, my way of saying fuck you is to not get up. But if you're coming early, of course, I'm going to get up, no problem. If you're constantly getting in and out of the theater, then no, fuck you, I'm not getting up. So you go around me, you know what I'm saying? But but there are people who are real dicks about you. Also, if you have to get up and go pee, when you come back, they're irritated by the fact that they have to move out of the way so you can get through the theater as well, uh, to get into your seat as well. That irritates me as much as I may be irritated as a moviegoer sitting in the theater. Sometimes people sitting in the movie theater can be such jerks to you. If you just went to go pee and came back about having to move. So that's frustrating too. What about you? I, I think in general, I will stand up, but when the movie's already playing, it might be that me standing up makes it more yes. of a disruption for the people behind me. Right. So then I probably, you know, I'll try to get my feet as out of the way as possible. Yeah. Some people just, blatantly make it hard for you to get past them. oh yeah on purpose on purpose yeah. it's very clearly on purpose yeah. and it's so like- I, I i tried to make sure that i bump their knees or step on their feet <laughs> no i do I'm sure fuck you. You let's do it <laughs> let's go if you want to go let's go because to me that that irritates the piss out of me um all right the film has ended john okay good and there is no this is going to be a medium not a short go ahead because i gotta go all right and there's popcorn you had your popcorn and your pretzel Mm -hmm. bites and your soda do you take out your trash yes of course clean up after yourselves it's the first thing you were taught as a child to clean up after yourself and i'm amazed at how many people think fuck them let them let them uh uh, minimum wage workers come in there and pick up my shit you dirty bacteria infested pieces of dog crap absolutely pick up after yourself fucking hell even more so if you have kids 
I couldn't agree more. I don't understand why we created like, here's a safe space for litterers. You know yeah. what I mean? Like oh, you can, you shouldn't litter anywhere, but except in the movie theater, just dump your shit wherever you want. Yeah. And again, it's just what you said and make some person making no money at all have to come in and clean up after you before the next. No, pick up your shit. Like, like it really pisses me off. I mean, have you ever read those articles of people who've worked in theaters and the stuff they find on the, th- it's mind blowing the shit. They find like baby diapers that have been soiled. Oh, all kinds of madness, tampons, rubbers. They find all kinds of stuff uh, after movies. And you're just like, what is wrong with humanity? You know? Um, I think that's all the questions I have about that. Do you have any, have we not explored any other part of the movie going experience? That you I will say this. No, some people get upset at people who jump up and react. And I don't know. I can't, I can't uh, be one of those people that gets upset at that. Cause I love that. And I, I've done it on a couple of occasions, not a lot of occasions, a couple of occasions, certainly Avengers when Hulk smashed Loki back <laughs> and forth. That got me out of my chair at the El Capitan. And then I think, oh, Avengers Endgame, when that happened in the screening, I got up like that. So, yeah, I, I get why people are irritated by that. But uh, as long as you don't do it in a way that's insane, I think there's um, a, a space for that. So I'll say that. Here, here, I'll give you my my final thoughts on okay. the movie going experience. Well, you know, we we've talked a lot about maybe people aren't going to be going to movies so much because streaming services yeah, yeah, yeah. and so on. Maybe it'll just be it for the big spectacle movies or whatever. I think when you go to the movie theater, what you have signed up for is a communal experience. Yes, you and the audience are a team. Mm-hmm. and you should be a good member of the team and that's why all these etiquette things are important because it's not just my experience it's yeah. everybody i'm with yes we're all in here together <laughs> trying to have a great time watching this movie and, and it it also depends because if you're watching a raucous comedy or you're watching a horror film or you're watching a heavy heavy drama yeah the rules are slightly different you know um things that would be acceptable in a crazy comedy right. are not acceptable watching you know a heavy drama agreed so I think I feel like we've served an educational purpose here. I hope all of you going to the movies with when we can get back into the theaters wow. will do it properly and with the proper respect. As always, patrons, thank you so much for your support. We could not make the Cinephiles without you. And for my partner, John Roca, I am Steve Morris, and we will see you on another Cinephile Short. And if you see us in a movie theater, you know how to act now. You know how to act now. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another edition of Cinephile Short. My name is Steve Morris. I am here with my trusty partner, John Roca. Hello, everyone. How are you? And today's suggestion is a great one. I think it comes from Sterling Jones, Mm -hmm. who says, Good evening to the both of you. Throughout your episodes on the Cinephiles, the term, but I digress, has been said. My question, (laughs) have you two had a conversation where you got off topic, but instead of peering it back on topic, y'all kept going and we were happy that you did? Sterling, I think that is a fantastic question. It's so interesting to me because there's so many podcasts that are really, they're really just one long digression. And sometimes that's the best stuff. I mean, I'll say this, and I hope you take this the right way. Hmm. Listening to the Top 10 Show, which I've done since the very beginning, some of my favorite things on that show are your digressions. Yes, I agree. Uh, And you're not the only one that feels that way. So many people have left messages for us about how much they enjoy our digressions. Not that they don't enjoy our countdowns, but our digressions from the movies that we're talking about um, are their favorite parts of the show. Well, when you first started out, was that, did you, did you think of that? Was that like the plan or? No, it's always been a natural thing. I, I just enjoy conversation. It's why I can do so many of these shows. Cause I just like to talk to people and hear back and forth and exchange ideas. I've just always been a natural talker. So um, that just seemed to be 
the smart thing to do to generate conversations uh, about certain topics. And when you're enjoying that, I think people enjoy listening. Uh, and it's one of the things I always enjoyed about Howard Stern or about um, uh, Mark Marin or about any of the Bill Simmons, any of the people that inspired me to get into this field. I love when they go off topic and have their uh, uh, digressions. It's so funny because one of the things you always digress on is exactly I think it would actually make a great show for me to not listen to. And that is you guys talk about sports. I mean, how, how much oh, do yeah. you enjoy talking about sports? With, yeah, a lot. With Matt, a lot. Yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, that's why I host the show on Mondays that I do on, on the Outlaw Nation game time. I love hosting it because I just love talking about sports. And in this city, in, in where I was living in Los Angeles, there are not a lot of sports people who also do mm. the movie space or whatever or the TV space. It's it's not as as, as many as you might think. Um, and so when I find people who are into sports, I always try to get them on the show so we can have fun conversations about it. And Matt is a huge NBA guy more than any other sport. Oh yeah. It's NBA. really clear. So yeah. So that's why he has his podcast. And so I like sitting down with him and talking NBA cause I trust his knowledge and I trust his, um, points of views. Let me, let me ask you this question. Yeah. If you had a choice and mm. someone said, John, you're going to make a good living. You're going to be well-known. You can either be a full-time sports guy on ESPN, doing Sports Center or whatever it is, or do it being a color guy on on play-by-play -play or you know mm -hmm. for whatever sport you want, or you can be like the top entertainment guy, always talking about movies, movie reviews, all that mm -hmm. stuff. Which, mm -hmm. but you can only pick one. Which which one are you picking? I refuse to play that game. I, <laughs> I like them How dare both you? equally. Yeah, I like them both equally. So I'd be happy to do. I'd be happy to do both. It's so fun. I think you're great at both, obviously, but every time, and I'm not a sports guy, as you know, but every time I listen to you talking sports, I'm like, man, you sound like one of those guys to me. Yeah. Like you I sound appreciate like, that. yeah. Like I was, yeah. I was calling the hot dog eating contest by myself in the, uh, <laughs> yesterday during July 4th, as we're recording this the day after July 4th. And uh, I had no idea my girlfriend had been listening while she was uh, doing some of the barbecue stuff. And she came in and she goes, I, I don't know why you don't do this. You're so natural at this. And I go, because... There's no opportunity. Like, where would I have to start at, like, high school or something to build up a resume and blah, blah, blah. So if anyone's listening who has any connections to a sports channel that's happy to bring me on to give me call games uh, virtually, then I'm happy to do it. Who, who won the hot dog contest and how many hot dogs Joey, did he? It was Joey Chestnut, 76. Jesus. Oh, my God. Broke his record from last year, which was wow. 75. And, and the thing is that I didn't know this time around, Steve, dogs per minute. I had no idea there's a statistic for dogs per minute. Uh, and I thought you had to eat the whole hot dog, bun and dog at the same time. No. You don't. No. They shove down the hot dog and then soak the bun in water and shove it in his mouth. Well, Insane. Do you know, I heard a whole podcast on this. Do you know how this came about? No. So this is, there is a guy, and I'm pretty sure his name is Kobayashi. Who yes, was Kobayashi. The, Kobayashi, yes. who was a small Japanese guy. Yep. And he just decided he wanted to win this competition. And so he went through like a year of study. And mm -hmm. the big revelation that he had was that what kills you is the bun. Yes, Because the course. bun is so dry, it dries your mouth out. And so he is the person, he is the person who came up with the idea. This is like, to me, the Fosbury flop. Oh, you know what wow. I mean? This yeah. is like someone who reinvents a sport is he said, oh, I'll separate them, soak the bun so, and compress it. So it's really one bite and it's wet and doesn't dry, dry your mouth out. And that is why this little skinny guy 
destroyed all of these people. And it took like it changed the sport. The sport yep. had to adjust to how he played the game. Right. Right. And Joey did. Joey adjusted and uh, uh, beat him. And then he's been winning ever since. And it's incredible to watch. And these guys are not even close. Steve, these are apparently these are the greatest or the best to do it. And they're not even within 20 hot dogs of this guy wow. by the time it's over. Because it's over a 10-minute period. And and I think I've read where Joey's like, it takes two weeks for his body to recover. Oh, I'm sure. from Because, I mean, you're, you're processing so much meat through your body. It can't be good on his bowels. It can't be good for his for his bowel movements uh, and overall general demeanor. You know what I'm saying? How do you even eat the next day? I right. don't know. Well, apparently there's a whole circuit. Like there is a competitive yeah. eating oh, yeah. circuit. And it's oh, like, yeah. oh, I'm going down to New Orleans to eat crawfish. And then I'm going over mm -hmm. here to eat slices of pizza or whatever it is or pie. Like, could you ever see yourself? Like, was there no. ever a time? I love to eat food. But... <laughs> No, I just couldn't do it. I mean, I, no, there's just no way. Because then you take away the joy of food, Steve, yeah, and you turn yeah. into competition. It's what I sometimes feel doing this business. Sometimes you see so many movies, you start to forget why you fell in love with movies. And it becomes a job. It becomes a chore. And that is something that I struggle with all the time. And it's just, I think this would be the same thing. How do these guys go out and enjoy a decent hot dog or a decent burger or, or anything like that? Because they've been trained to look at it in a certain way, you know? Uh, totally. Well, it's, it's funny. There was a time I could put away a lot of food. I mean, obviously I'm a big guy, <laughs> but I actually don't eat that much. I, I eat, you know, Karen and I go right. out to dinner. We eat the same amount of food. Mostly yeah. Yeah. like maybe I eat a little bit more sometimes, but not that much. I used to, when I was 20, Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, yeah, you know, I could take down like how many slices of pizza, you know, how many. Uh, and now I don't actually have that gear. And, it, and it, there's something almost sad that I cannot like go to like the greatest thing in the world is like, I'm going to go to town on this buffet. I'm just going to I'm going to move in and I'm going to take out like really, you know, when you go, I always this is sad. I'm going to just tell you what this is. <laughs> go ahead. Is, it, I, you got to strategize when you go to a buffet. You got to like you get you don't like people who just grab their plate and go in line. No, those are amateurs. Mm -hmm. Like you got to walk the whole buffet. Yes. You have to come up. You have to find the expensive food. Like don't mm -hmm. fill up on the bread. Right. Find the shrimp like you got to. And then you got to think about, well, what things do I want on my plate for plate number one? Right. Like course it out for yourself. I'm going to start with something a little lighter. Then I'm going to move on to this course and that course. And also figuring out how much stuff you can put on the plate and what items to put next to each other. Right. Like you don't want to put the cocktail sauce next to the Caesar salad. Right. That's going to That's a terrible. That's a terrible move. You're right about that. That's like anything else in life. You have to plan it out if you're going to be there for a bit. Most of the amateurs roll up. They slub everything onto one plate. And they force themselves to go to a second plate because they're like, well, I paid this much. Yeah. I might as well have. A but they rarely finish the second plate. Right. So you've got to understand how. And you're right. Starting slow, starting light. So you're building up and realize that you're going to be there for a bit. So you've got, as long as you understand that, then you can plan it out correctly. You're right about that. I just do that with Bob's Breakfast Buffet yeah. at 2 a.m. Whenever we'd go out and drinking in high school, not drinking, I guess, go out, hang right. out in high school and stay up late playing tennis because we were fucking nerds and not cool kids. We would go and do the breakfast buffet. And it's like you can't load up on the pancakes right off the bat. It's the eggs and the sausages, maybe one biscuit. And then yes, you move yes. on to the potatoes and you move on to the pancakes. But don't rush it and take your time. And then right. if you do it right, you earn the chocolate brownie or the mm. chocolate piece of cake at the end of the 
Bob's Big Boy I, uh, yeah, breakfast bar. And I think it's very important to space out the bacon. Like you want to have, oh yeah, because I want a little bit of bacon throughout the meal. I don't want to just bacon it up because bacon lets, it goes with everything. Yes, it does. There, there was a girl in college who I had, one of many girls in college I had major crushes on and rarely mm. had the confidence to ask them out. <laughs> and she was in a playwriting class with me and we hung out all the time. Mm. And uh, she was Turkish and she had oh. some insane stories. But the one that just endeared her and her family so much to me is that she said when her family went to the Sizzler, which had the all you can eat. Oh, yeah. Her mom lined her purse with saran wrap. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that just the greatest thing you've ever heard? So she could take stuff home. Oh, so my she God. could just like she was like little for me, little for the purse, little for That's me, little madness. for the purse. Absolute madness. I, I was at a Costco, and you know how Costco they have the snack bar with the hot dogs oh, and the stuff like that. Yeah. So Karen and I are there. We're eating a hot dog or something, and mm -hmm. up drives a woman in a beautiful Mercedes. You know, like the S class, oh, yeah. like the hundred and twenty thousand dollar Mercedes. Yeah, she yeah. gets out wearing like a Saint John knit, like a very obviously very expensive outfit. She walks straight up to the drink dispenser pulls out a Ziploc bag, puts ice in the Ziploc bag, fills the Ziploc bag with Pepsi, grabs a straw and walks back to her Mercedes and drives away. Oh my God. Yeah. And we called that lady coconut bag. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just, and I don't know why it would come up. It's like, oh, well, like coconut bag. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. I, I look, I see people look, the Costco is here now five minutes away from my house. It's mm -hmm. great. It's one of the greatest and worst things that could ever happen to me because I love just wandering Costco's. Oh, I love me too. It. I love it. It's so great. I know my girl, it drives my girlfriend nuts. She hates it, but I love to go in there. Sometimes I don't even bring a cart into the store. I just walk around and it's not about trying samples of the food. It's, oh, it's like, all about samples for me. <laughs> yeah. Really? Okay. So yeah. for me, it's more like what's new. What have mm. you got that I didn't think I needed, but it might, might be affordable and I can get to decorate my house or to maybe get buy a pair of uh, Adidas sweatpants or something that I hadn't thought about trying food wise that you sell right. uh, in your place. So I like doing that. But when I come out, there are all kinds of people who enjoy Costco pizza and the Costco sure. hot dogs and whatever. So uh, one of the terrible things, I have to be very careful about how much Costco pizza I eat because I allow myself a slice or two every few weeks. I can't because mm -hmm. I would go two or three times a week if I had my my own way of doing things, but I know that would not be good for my health. So right. I have to keep it chill. So, I mean, honestly, like it's there for the for the price. It, it's pretty good. You Five know. bucks, you get two slices and a drink. It's and they're perfect. big, big slices. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, I, I, too, like wandering the aisles of Costco. Mm. And and particularly, although it's sad right now because of the pandemic, there are no no free samples. I'm like, when are the samples coming back? Oh, they're uh, back. Oh, are, we they weren't in my Costco. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, one of the things that's happened is because we spent so little money on going out to eat over the mm. last year and a half, and I spent so much time cooking that this was the year of the kitchen gadgets at the Morris house. Yeah. I bought, so like I finally, you know, we had like a $25 blender yeah, yeah. and I'd always seen like the Vitamix, like the $300 oh, yeah. blender. And I, I was like, come on, that can't really be worth it. And I bought one during the pandemic and I immediately turned it on. I'm like, holy shit, yeah. this thing is amazing. <laughs> like it is just, it's actually yeah. scary. It's so powerful. So I got a Vitamix. I got a vacuum sealer. Oh, I got, the vacuum sealer. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, what else? What else? I mean, I've done so many cooking experiments. Like I made pastrami mm. from scratch. Oh, wow. That turned, and it was like curing the meat in liquid 
for a week in the refrigerator. Yeah. It's just sitting there in this bath with salt. And then, and then I cooked it in the uh, instant pot and a little liquid wow. smoke and it was pastrami. Like it really, it yeah. was the most, um, cause it was the weirdest transformation of a food. And I love, maybe it's just a Jewish thing, but I love good pastrami is one of my yeah. favorite things. It's well, um, nice and lean. <laughs> the, the, uh, there's all kinds of that. And I appreciate people who can, who have the patience to cook. I, I cook simply. Mm-hmm. I can make a chicken breast. I can make rice, whatever. But like that kind of extension, I always marvel at, which is why I watch those cooking shows with just one, my eyes wide open at just marveling at people who can understand how to pair flavors, how to prepare meat in a certain way. Like, or even bread, like we've gotten into the, uh, or I've gotten into the Great British Baking Show because Mm. she was already into it. So she got me into it. And this whole idea of proofing the dough before you make the bread blew my mind. Because I thought you just knead the dough, toss it in the oven, and there's your bread. No, you have to like watch it Mm -hmm. and be aware of it and make sure it doesn't go too far. Fuck that. That's a that's too much of patience for me. And it's setting yourself up to fail that I, I don't think I could handle in a kitchen, to be well, honest. Well, there, there's such, particularly the, and I don't do the bread thing. I mean, I, I love mm. to cook and I'm a good cook, but I've never done the bread thing. Mm. And the art of because it's also like, well, what's the humidity out? Yes, because exactly. That's going to change the timing or what kind of yeast is in the air or what, right. you know, like there's all the all these things and people that are really good at it are looking mm. at the bread and go, this has to proof a little bit longer. I have to need right. this a little bit more. But, it, but what's funny is like anything, there are things that if you do them enough, you get a sense for them. Mm-hmm. You know, like like one of the things, like if I read a recipe, there's all these things that no one would know because they're not in the recipe. That if you right. cook a while, you know. Like I can tell by my ear how hot the pan is. Like, oh, right. that's a little too hot. You know, or by, by what the smell of the steam is, it steam or smoke coming mm-hmm. off the pan. Like the, all those things, those take a lot of time. Right. You know, it's like anything you do. There are, there are so many things that I'm sure you do on the YouTube channel mm. that you don't even think about yeah. at this point. It's just natural. Oh, I got to move it along a little bit here. Or I got to, right. you know, all that stuff is just because you've done it over and over and over again. Yeah. And it took me over a year to get the Geek Buddies to get fucking microphones uh, <laughs> that they could use. And now it's about making sure they can figure out the levels of the volume. All that stuff that comes natural to me. Uh, and I'm always improving. Like I just got the Elgato cam link. So my mm. look can start to be more at 1080p for the videos on my channel. And now, and the next step now is getting a 4k monitor so I can mm. record in 4k for my Sony ZV one. So right. I'm always like, you know, what's the next step. And other people are just happy with like talking into their computer. It drives me insane when I see celebrities who can afford this equipment with mm-hmm. absolutely no effort uh, recording and talking into the mics in their MacBook computer. I'm like, get a fucking mic, get a decent fucking camera. You can afford it. Get your assistant, because I know you're not out there right. doing it yourself. Get your assistant to go and get all this stuff and set it up for you. It's not that hard. And so it drives me nuts when I see them in celebrity interviews with the echo in their hallway. Yeah. Oh, I go insane. <laughs> it's you're becoming more like me. It's sad. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of. Yeah, because you make me very paranoid about audio issues. I know. It's I've very done that. true. I, I, I very really true. didn't. I knew that I was doing that. And I was like, oh, I, I should. No, no, it's not your fault. It's good. It's good. And I need to get rid of this focus, right? Because it's fucking low rent shit. I need not that there's anything wrong with the company, right? 
But for what I want to do, I right. want to be able to be aware of everybody's audio feed when I'm recording them and adjust the volume. So it may be, mean me spending like $500 down the road to get a really good soundboard so I can do that. And I've got to learn how to do that. So well, and that's clearly I'm interested. It, so. Well, this is this is the thing about and this is when people come to film school, like trying to explain it's like, yeah, filmmaking is an art, yeah. but it is really technical and it's really it a craft. And there is just an infinite amount of knowledge. It's like. I know more about sound than you do because I yes. took sound classes. Yep, of course. But when I talk to actual sound people, <laughs> I don't even know what the fuck they're talking about. Yeah, I mean, there's like sure. this sound. It's, it was really funny. I learned this when when uh, when I was doing, I think the the first shark documentary mm. is that I, I I had a sound guy who I worked with named Nathan Smith, who's awesome. He had his own studio, and what I found out, yeah, sound. If you're going to be an independent sound guy, is so much more expensive than being an independent editing guy video guy oh yeah because they have to you know just a microphone he had a three thousand dollar microphone you know all the equipment all the monitors the speakers to have everything really good his his studio was like fifty thousand dollar studio yeah and this is yeah. an independent guy he's a great great guy and talking it's like i have okay ears right but people have really good ears like oh there's a you know a 3k hiss on that thing that we're going to filter out with this thing and right. and what's so funny about it is that on one level it makes no difference like you had geek buddies episodes where yeah. they didn't have good mics and the yeah. episodes were fantastic and they yeah. were great but on another level every little thing that is a little bit of hiss or a little bit of thinness mm. of the voice or it's a little bit harder to understand what someone's saying. So you're straining a little bit is reducing your enjoyment of the thing as a whole. A thousand percent. Yeah. The baseline is, this is what I always say to people who ask me about podcasts, getting into shows or whatever. Personality is what's going to build you a base. Right. Technical quality is what's going to expand your base. Right. And that's, that's the difference there. Yes. Uh, Cause people are like, Oh, I started a podcast. Nobody's listening. I get it. But it's your personality that's going to sell. You could do it in a tin box. It doesn't matter how much money you have to spend. If you're boring to listen to, if you're not interesting to listen to, if you don't have some kind of angle or aspect to it that attracts people's attention, no one's going to listen. They're not. So, but once you establish that, then it's your responsibility to get better equipment so that the people who are bothered by it, who won't give you a chance, will give you a chance because they can understand you. Um, the problem I have is I'm not more cutthroat and malicious because I think I, if I was, then a year ago, I'd have made them get mics. I'd have made them get a soundboard. I'd have made them. But this is not what they want to do. The Geek right. Buddies, I mean, Shannon and Mike, they've got outside interests beyond the show. If right. the show ever becomes something that is like super bringing in money, then I think that attitude will shift. But for now, we're building what we're building and we're enjoying doing that because it was a way of keeping our friendships uh, going because right. we couldn't see each other all the time. But now you know, it's just like this. Like, you know, the reason people love this show initially was our conversations, but we didn't even figure out the show until months later. But your editing is what's kind of been a part of elevating the show to where people are really enjoying it and looking forward to it every week. Well, I, I agree with everything you said is that if we didn't have good conversations, the best mics in the world and the best editing in the yeah. world wouldn't save it. You know, mm -hmm. like those things are things that make it better. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. it's like it, it, it is such a because it so goes to everything we talk about on the cinephiles itself, which is that, you know, we're doing Die Hard right now. Yeah. And there's all these little choices, all of which are like not necessary. Right. You right, know, right, like right. I remember when we talked about of just like following the carts, the luggage carts, and then seeing the Argyle sign. Yeah. There was no reason to shoot the luggage carts, except it was cooler. And it makes that movie 0.03 percent better. 
Right. If you cut it out, would Die Hard still be a great movie? Absolutely. Yeah. But it's all those little things. And it's like, you know, like I, you know, when mm -hmm. I hear it, it's funny, part of it is for podcasts for me, it's because I listen to everything at two, two and a half times speed mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. that audio quality makes a bigger difference because it's oh yeah because i need to be able to hear people being really articulate and if someone's calling into like a phone interview with a shitty mic well i have to slow oh. the podcast down because i can't oh. understand them you know more nazi but i like it and i like that i'm called to it i like that i'm challenged by it and look you know i'm still building only seventeen thousand. that's nothing compared to what the people are that i look at that i want to get at get to so my job is to make sure the quality of my shit is is as top as it can be from what I can afford, you know? Right. So doing the 4K videos, all of that, that separates me from other people in this sphere who are trying to get seen or get watched or whatever. Now, after I've got the quality, now I've got to come up with new and interesting ways to do these reviews, to do these trailer reactions, to do these pre-produced videos, to do the stuff that I want to do. That's the challenge for me as a creative person now, mm -hmm. you know, next. So it's, it's all a process and... You got to be patient and, you know, have it you know, work on it and have it come to you as it naturally comes to you. And I'm very lucky to have a, a strong base of, of followers who go right. with me to whatever I do. Well, and they wouldn't be with you if you hadn't done the other stuff well to get there. Right. You exactly. know, I mean, like the, the thing to me is I really think if like if you and I ever go. All right, the cinephiles is done. We figured it out. We'll just do it the same way. Well, no, I, I mean like we'll just oh, do it the same way forever. We've just we we've yeah. locked in what the cinephiles is. I think that's when we start to die. I right, think you course. and I have to continue. We do. We have yeah. conversations fairly regularly about well, what if we try doing this or what if we try doing that mm -hmm. and how can we make the show? Yes, we you do. Know, yeah, and because that's that. And part of it is for me is a, I am a creative person. Like I can't not think about. Yeah interesting things to do and and a lot of them i think have come from just wouldn't it be interesting if we did blank or wouldn't it be fun yeah. or challenging you know well that's why we changed our logo i was pushing for us absolutely to change our logo for years and then eventually we have and i'm still not 100 percent satisfied i want it to be even right. higher end and we'll, we'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it but i'm already in the place for my channel steve of i want to revamp everything now right like it's it's i've established myself it is what it is now let's go next level with the look let's go mm -hmm. next level with the logos let's go next level with the color scheme uh i'm already in conversations to build a website so there's all these things that i'm constantly building and want to go after um and you know and the social media thing as well so it's all just it's all just the process and i but wait what were we talking about Did, are we on a diatribe is this one of these digressions he was talking I about well, that's, I mean, I think, you know, I think we've done a pretty good job, Sterling, in answering <laughs> how we handle digressions on the cinephiles. We try to, you know, I mean, I think, I think we went into a lot of detail about that. So I hope you under, have a better understanding of that. Um, as always, to all of our patrons, you are what help keep the show going. And if you want to send in your other shorts <laughs> topics for us to not answer, we will happily, happily do that. John, do you have anything uh, else you want to talk about? Like the weather or politics no, or no, no. science? Um, the truth is, I, I we do so many digressions in, on the show to ask us to pick our favorite one over five years of we doing the show or four years of doing the show. Um, I think is a, is a tall order to be honest with you. So um, this is just the natural stuff that we do. So I think they're all equally fun depending on what we're talking about and what movie we're doing it in. So, yeah. Well, and I think in all honesty, like the uh, there is a point for us. I think, I think our show, the cinephiles has such a structure to it that I, yeah. we tend to not let digressions go on very long. True. 
that it, but, but they also are sometimes the brightest moment in the show where you and I just start talking about something, start laughing. And it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then to go to get us back on track and get us back into what the show is. So again, in all seriousness, thank you for all of your support (laughs) Uh, for my partner, John Roca. I am Steve Morris, and we will see you on another cinephile short. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.